You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Our text this Father's Day Sunday comes from John's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 7 through 9. And reads this way. This is Jesus. If you know me, you will know my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Father's Day is a day of mixed emotions for me. As the father of two girls myself, I have a very positive outlook on fatherhood. However, as the son of a fundamentalist and... Um, a father suffering from mental illness my whole life, some version of psychosis, and I was raised in a home with his spiritual worldview, as messed up as that was, Um, and he was emotionally and spiritually abusive, still is, but because of that, I have mixed feelings, we'll say, about today and about fatherhood. And all this got me thinking this week about, of course, Father's Day and what it means for me to think of God as a father and whether or not I still do. And to be honest, I really don't anymore. I don't think of God in terms of male or female, mother or father. For me, God transcends gender. God is the is the original they them, <laughs> which I think is a great point to make during Pride Month, as it's something that affirms our queer, non-binary, and trans friends. This idea that God is they them. But to be clear, I don't mean to say that there isn't something beautiful or meaningful about thinking of God as a loving parent. I want to affirm that today. If that's something that still is meaningful and valuable to do, to you, I want to affirm that here. It can be a beautiful thing to think of God as a loving parent, but I personally tend not to think of God in those terms anymore. I think all of that really is a human projection of God, which to be clear and to be fair, all of our conceptions All of our ways of speaking and thinking about God, including mine, these are all human projections. In other words, such ideas come from us. Any metaphors we come up with for God, any vocabulary, we speak English mostly here. Some of us speak other languages. I speak English. Any any English words I come up with for God or use for God are ultimately human in origin. Our words, our vocabulary, any any metaphysical or theological 
concepts and, and constructs we come up with for God are ultimately human in origin and thereby inherently anthropomorphic. There's a word for you, anthropomorphic in nature. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Be very clear. There's nothing wrong with that. What, what other choice do we have <laughs> to, to speak of God? There's nothing wrong with that as long as we understand that's what we're doing. Such an understanding keeps us from overcommitting ourselves to our particular language and our particular ideas about God. It keeps us from getting too rigid, too dogmatic, too doctrinal in our thinking. Because we know that these are ultimately just our views or our traditions views, our language about God. They are human in origin and therefore imperfect and limited attempts to speak of that which we ultimately cannot speak of, that which defies, transcends definitions and conceptualization. I do wonder, though, if thinking about God in terms of a father is more problematic than, say, other conceptions. So many of us were raised to think of God in purely male terms or purely fatherly terms, were we not? Right? If somebody ever stood up in my church growing up and talked about God as a she or as a mother, I mean, that I could get you fired if you're a pastor in the churches I grew up in. Why is that? Why was that a boundary? What is it about maleness and fatherhood that so dominates how we Christians think of God? Well, I think the answer is obvious because we live in a patriarchal society, a patriarchal culture, and so did the ancients who wrote the text. Just like so many cultures do today, it's generally cultures are patriarchal in nature. There are exceptions, but generally male-centric. But what happens when we conflate God with our culture's definition of fatherhood and masculinity? What happens? Well, I, I think God takes on these traditional masculine and fatherly traits, which is to say that God becomes often an authoritarian figure, right? A disciplinarian in other traditionally male and and fatherly roles. And maybe if our traditional understanding of fatherhood and men weren't so problematic, <laughs> thinking of God in terms of a father wouldn't be so problematic either, but it, it kind of is, in my opinion. You don't have to agree with me. For those of us who went through or who are going through deconstruction, maybe you never exit deconstruction once you go in. <laughs> I think we experience deconstruction in large part as the death of this, this God, this, this traditional father figure God, which means the death of this divine authoritarian being who demands obedience, demands right belief and certainty, and who threatens us 
with punishment, discipline, right? a divine spanking, if you will. The, the traditional understanding of God the Father is also about this, this God who controls everything. He's all-powerful. He's the divine John Wayne, right? <laughs> a strong and mighty man who, who rules over the world and rules over humanity and rules over the cosmos just like a traditional father would rule over his household and his family. Deconstruction. I should also say that the traditional understanding of God the Father is, of course, this all-powerful Father, this all-powerful being, um, the ultimate protector of his family, who can always save the day, right? Deconstruction, I think, is in no small part um, about the death of this traditional patriarchal understanding of God as the ultimate father figure on high. So the question becomes, what gets reconstructed in his wake? If anything, what God, if any, gets reconstructed in the death of the father? Or the father, the father figure God. Well, I think Jesus's words from our text today in John 14 can be really helpful in this regard. Let's read it again. If you know me, you will know my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip replies, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, therefore, show us the Father? I love, I love how Philip sounds here, like, you know, the traditional um, skeptic, right? The traditional rational thinker, when he says to Jesus, you know, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And this reminds me of those old arguments atheists use. And to be clear, they're not bad arguments. They're not illogical. They go something like, if God is real, then why doesn't he just reveal himself physically to us? Why doesn't he just float down from the sky one day hold a press conference on CNN, perform some miracles, and you know, prove, prove himself, reveal that he's real. Philip kind of sounds like that to me. And, and the problem with such ideas is that they presuppose that God is a being like us or an object like us in space-time, that, or that God has a form, albeit a spiritual form, but, you know, a form, nonetheless. And therefore, God, we assume, could materialize if they wanted to. All of this is, of course, anthropomorphic ways of, of thinking and relegating God to the category, to human categories, categories of objects in space-time, uh, and relegating God to the ontological, which is a fancy philosophical word that means 
the nature of being. It's all about an, an ontological way of placing God in our ontology of beinghood. God is a being. God is a being. He exists as a being like us somewhere, in, whether or not in space-time, but something adjacent to space-time, the spirit realm. We think of God in these terms. We can't avoid it, maybe. I'm not sure if that's what Philip is doing here, but it sure sounds like it. And I love Jesus's response to him when he says, have I been with you all this time and you still do not know me? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. I think when Jesus says this, he obviously doesn't mean that God physically looks like him. He's not saying, you know, God and I, we have the same jawline, the same hair, the same eye color. If I showed you a, a picture, a photo of God, you, you would see the family resemblance between he and I. No, of course not. That's ridiculous. Instead, I think Jesus is saying that when you see his character, you're seeing the character of God. When you see his virtues and values, his ways of living, his preference for the poor, his preference for the poor and the powerless, his care and concern for the so-called least of these, the so-called nothings and the so-called nobodies, the outcasts, the afflicted, the infirmed, those on the margins of society, the Samaritans, those in exile, those declared to be heretics, transgressors, when we see his care and concern and solidarity with them, instead of his solidarity with the rich and the powerful and the elites, when we see that, that Jesus, we are seeing God. We are seeing the nature of the divine on display. We are seeing the Father's heart so to speak. That's what I think Jesus is getting at here. I think Jesus is also saying to Philip, stop being so wooden and literal and superficial in your thinking about things like God. Stop relegating God to the categories you're already familiar with and comfortable with, this, these categories of beinghood. God is not an object or a being that can be seen like a tree or a dog. Which is to say that I think Jesus is calling Philip to redefine and change the way that he thinks of seeing and perceiving things, especially things like God. I think, I think Jesus is calling him to redefine the way that he thinks about what it means to see and perceive God in the world. I want to take things a step further here because I think Jesus is also collapsing any distinction between God and himself. I think he's collapsing any distinction between the God and himself. I think he's saying that he is literally God and God is literally him. I think he's saying that he is the embodiment or the incarnation of divine wisdom and love, which I think actually opens up the possibility that God can be seen with our physical eyes. 
In other words, when Jesus says to Philip, when, you seen, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father, maybe he means that there is no distinction between his body and the body of God, his flesh and the Spirit of God. I'd like to think that maybe he means that there is no distinction between God and himself, even on like a physical level. We, we tend to bifurcate, we modern post-enlightened people, we tend to bifurcate the physical and the spirit world. But I think maybe Jesus collapsed those two, or maybe his contemporaries collapsed those two. The spirit and the flesh aren't two things. They're really one thing. Everything is spirit. Everything is energy, to use terms from physics. Matter is just a different kind of energy. I think that might be kind of what we're finding here. I think Jesus is collapsing any distinction between God and himself, and I think he may be actually collapsing any distinction between God and us, God and the world. Consider that in the same chapter of our text today, in John's Gospel, Jesus says this, I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. You hear that circularity? I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. In other words, Jesus not only collapses any distinction between God and himself, but also between us and God. We are all one. We are all part of this divine existence. <laughs> this divine beinghood, if you will, the spirit. We are all one. How powerful is that? This is called pantheism or panentheism. God is all or God is in all or all is inside of God, which is a view that I really like. And it's actually an ancient view. It's very old, thousands of years old. And it was an ancient Christian view. This is not some newfangled new age understanding. This is ancient stuff. And we find it even in the earliest Christian writings. Consider Paul's words, the Apostle Paul's words from Acts. In God, we live and move and have our being. In God, we live and move and have our being. This means, I think, that Jesus' body and our body and all of the cosmos and and nature itself is somehow inextricable from the one, the source, God. Choose your metaphor. If you don't like the metaphor God, choose another one. Describe it as the one, the source. I don't know. Ultimate reality. That's another good term. This, of course, led Christians since the inception of the church to say some really radical and mystical things like Athanasius, the church father from the fourth century, who once said, God became man. He spoke in patriarchal terms, sorry. We'll say human. God became human so that humanity might become God. That was orthodoxy in the first four centuries of the church. God became human in the person of Jesus of Nazareth to show that human beings are really God. Human beings are divine, our flesh, our bodies. And all of their wonder and all of their earthiness and all of their diversity, 
And that diversity, of course, extends not just to ethnicity and color, but to sexuality and gender. It's all part of the divine. God became human so that humanity might become or be revealed as always was God, the divine. In other words, the deepest meaning of the incarnation, the deepest meaning of this idea that God became flesh, is that all flesh is divine. And since we are dust, and to dust we shall return, the scriptures also say. Dust itself is divine, which is just another way of saying that all of nature and the cosmos is divine, because it's all dust, so to speak. It's all made from stardust. From the material ejected out from supernovas billions of years ago, everything is stardust. We know this now. And the scriptures tell us, the ancient text, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God is all and in all. God is us. God is dust. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? I don't know. I find that so profound and meaningful and affirming about life and what it means to be here now. Everything is really one thing. Everything emanates from God and returns to God for all things are part of God, the one, the source, ultimate reality. This is how I understand texts like the one before us today. There's a certain circularity to them. I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, for in him we live and move and have our being. This is our text. This is our sacred text, our, the Bible. I take such texts to, to their ultimate conclusion. I follow them to where they ultimately lead, I think, which for me means that to see each other, to see our body and the bodies of those around us is to see God. There is no distinction. To see the natural world and all of its beauty and splendor is to see God. Whenever we see love and compassion and justice in the world, is to see God. Whenever we see the oppressed liberated, is to see God. Whenever we see the afflicted and the downtrodden lifted up, is to see God. Whenever we see the truth triumph over lies and falsehood, is to see God. All this and more, I think, are ways of seeing God. For whoever has seen me and seen you has seen the Father. And as we turn towards the Lord's Supper today, this holy sacrament is just another way of seeing God, actually. For Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. That too is part of our holy scripture. This is my body, says the Lord. This is my blood. And by receiving it into our bodies, we are saying, God is now one with me and I am now one with God. And there is no distinction between the divine and me and the divine and us. That to me is the deeper meaning of this holy sacrament we call the Eucharist.
communion, the Lord's Supper. This table, just like Jesus's table fellowship with others, this table is open to all who are here and wish to partake. Here at Central, we serve each other. I serve the first person in the pew, and then everybody serves each other as a way of symbolizing this is what it means for us to be Christ in the world. This is gluten-free. This is alcohol-free. You just take one of the crackers, you dip it in the cup, you receive it, and you serve the person next to you. Be blessed now in this. Each episode of The Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. That's a great question. Yeah. So Marsh is asking, you know, I describe, you know, God in the sense of oneness today, and this idea that, you know, everything in this kind of pantheistic way is God or inside of God. How do we, how do we reconcile evil, the evil in the world with this? Is this also God? That's a great question. And, you know, different Christians, different theologians, Jewish, not Christian, uh, other theologians from other faiths who, let me be very clear, this idea of oneness, this idea that all is, you know, inside of God or part of God, this is not just a Christian idea. This is a very uh, interfaith idea. You find it in Judaism, certainly find it in um, various expressions of Hinduism, um, shamanism, even Buddhism. Um, some, you know, if we, if we read the Old Testament, um, the ancient Israelites understood God as totally sovereign and did not believe that even the evil that took place in the world was separate and distinct from the will of God. Now, I personally don't like that view very much. Um, you know, I personally don't see God as all-powerful anymore, okay? I see God as, you know, not so much a being and like Superman in the sky but more of like the being of beings, the ground of being, as Paul Tillich would put it. Um, God is the mind or the consciousness that is behind the existence of everything, okay? But God is not in control. And for me, part of the message of the cross, the crucified God, God who suffers in the world, suffers with us, it's not at all powerful picture of God. And so I, I from there, say, you know, God, God self, God their self endures suffering even now as we suffer. We are not separate and distinct from God. God is not. Uh, the Calvary isn't coming. We're given, cal we're given, how does John Caputo put it? Um, Calvary, Calvary, meaning the place where Jesus was crucified. There's no Calvary. <laughs> Calvary. Calvary. Now, someone say, what about the resurrection? Okay. But my point is, for me, evil is not a part of God, but nevertheless, God is subject to evil and suffering just like we are, because that's the nature of the universe. Now, I know that doesn't tie everything up in a nice little bow and say, hey, this all makes perfect sense, and isn't this, doesn't this just feel better? No. Um, 
at some level, we have to embrace unknowing in, in this stuff and embrace the tension and the difficulty therein. Um, we're not going to get all the answers. And I don't pretend to have them. And um, that's the best I can do. Yeah. So I, I guess all that to say, Marsha, is, you know, when it comes down to evil, depends on what you mean by evil, natural evil, hurricanes, tornadoes, or are you talking about genocide committed by human beings? Yeah, yeah, there's different understanding. Evil's a difficult question. What do we mean by evil? Are we talking about natural disasters, you know, wind and rain? Are we talking about things that human beings do? Yeah, so those are compli that complicates the waters as well. But no, to answer your question, from my conception of the divine for God, I, I experience God as love, pure love, and this sense of, of connection um, to, um, yeah, just love. That's, that's how I conceive of God now. Um, and again, that word love is complicated as well, but yeah. Other thoughts, remarks, where do you, where do you got, where do you, I don't have to be like the, uh, the answer to this. I'd love to hear your views about Martians or anything else. Um, I think my whole problem with, like Marshall was saying, that was literally my question. Like, I get the whole good thing, right? We are all one, blah, blah, blah. But like, how does evil fit into all that? Um, and I think how I used to think in the more conservative way, um, I just, the unknowing was, well, God is all powerful, but why do bad things still happen? Because if he's all powerful still, then he's either purposely not changing things. And I'm the evil I'm talking about is animal cruelty, rape and molestation of children. I mean, these are things that are happening all the time. So if you're all powerful, you're either a torturous God that just thinks and allows those things to happen for what? That, that there's no, I don't believe in everything happens for a reason anymore. And then if, I mean, it makes more sense that he did when he, when God came down to become human, I am him and he is me. Um, and then he died and came back alive. I feel like that sort of morphed. There were two changes there. Um, and then I believe that he should, he is with us in our suffering on this earth. Uh, I refuse to think that that all we need to do on this earth is suffer. I think we he does want us to find joy and uh, live joy and feel it and love people. And I think that that's sort of the message. But how do we come to terms with those bad things happening? Because are we then saying, so humans are the evil ones? And then I know this none of these are going to get answered. I'm just bringing up these questions. Um, but like, where does the evil come from? We're told, right? It's, we started it. Then Lucifer, blah, blah, blah. So like, I don't know, have you ever thought about that? Like, what are, what, like, where is the evil coming from that's making these humans do terrible things to children and animals and old people and, you know, I mean, full stop. I'm ready. I'm ready for you to Give it to me. <laughs> yeah, Diana, you want to jump in there? I mean, I think like anything, you know, if you look at, you know, it's a lot in Chinese beliefs, but the yin, the 
Oh, sorry, I'm too quiet. Okay. Um, you know, in Chinese beliefs, the yin and the yang, that there's, if there's with energy, if there's one side, there has to be another. Um, I think that there has to be some form of evil if there is some form of good or else we don't have that balance, unfortunately. I just think it's confusing when, I mean, like Aaron said, like we are not going to have all the answers. And I think it's really hard as, as humans, we want to have answers. Like it is very hard to just not know why things exist. But I think, I don't know. I don't know that we will ever really fully understand why some people commit horatious crimes and act so selfishly and, and do things so horrific to others. Um, but I do think that like, in order for our world to exist, unfortunately, like there, there has to be the balance in the energies. And that does mean that in order to have amazing, wonderful things, we have to have awful evil. And maybe that's a terrible view, but. I mean, obviously we don't grow as people if everything's good all the time. So I guess there's got to be some sort of reason for bad things happening here so that we can all sort of grow from terrible times, I guess. Hey, Aaron, it's Akilah. Hey, who's that? Akilah, can you hear hey, me? Akilah, welcome. Um, yeah, I just had, I think, two things to say. So thank you for the discussion, you know, this idea of defining God. And, uh, you know, as you were talking about that scripture reminded me of in the Old Testament when God says, I am that I am, like that idea that there's there's really no real way to define God. Even God's like, don't worry about it. I'm God. That's that's what I am. I am God. Um, and then like for our own personal journey, I think for me, what I what I what I choose to believe today is that God is everything good in the world. So that can that um so th bad things happen, but I find I find God where there is goodness, and that can even be within bad things. So, you know, it took me some time to come to that conclusion. Um, and I think the other other part of that, so I guess it was a three point three point presentation, um, is what is it the Ezekiel with the dry bones and all that stuff with thinking about thinking about. Um, I wrote a summary about it, so it's like now my favorite passage but um i think you know part of what i i learned from doing that was that god is also where faith is and if i don't have faith i have to put on somebody else's faith so that i can believe things will be okay so you know when i just tie it all together that's kind of where it comes to me like god is undefinable and unknowable but god for me is also everything good and if i don't have belief i believe that other people believe that things are good and then things will get better so that's kind of where i am yeah good stuff thanks akila yeah i i guess the best thing i can do to answer your question or address i'm not going to answer i'm going to address it um is to share my personal journey with this in this what i had to do in order to get to a place of um comfort with this if there is a place there's not but more comfort with it. I, I had to go through a significant paradigm shift. And I spoke to this in my in my talk today. I had to get away from thinking of God as a being, right? Being like us. 
like the old man in the sky. And I also had to get away from, and this is not easy, right? Stuff is not easy. We, the, the, the God, the, the metaphysics that we've been given about God from our tradition is, of course, that God is like Zeus. God is, you know, Superman. He's, he's, he's a real being that lives somewhere up there in the sky. And if not up there, he's in a, an adjacent realm, but he's a being, right? And he's got, he, he's, he's got a, uh, he's all powerful. Right? So I had to get away from thinking of God ontologically as a being like me and get away from thinking of God as Superman. God is just a souped up version of us. We're limited in knowledge. He's all knowing. We're limited in power. He's all powerful. He's just like a souped up version of us. I had to get away from both of those conceptions and embrace instead this idea, uh, again, that, that Paul Tillich and other theologians talked about, that God is the being of beings. God, God is the essence, the ultimate reality underlying the universe, this life, us. And God is essentially the consciousness, the mind, if you will, the spirit, the energy. <laughs> the, these, I'm trying to invoke vocabulary words that are better than beinghood, okay? Because we're, we are limited in language here. We're trying to speak of that which we ultimately cannot speak of with our three-pound brains. But this is where faith is helpful, right? This idea that we can transcend conceptualization and say God is beyond what I can conceive of, but I can experience, I can intuitively sense that I am connected to something transcendent and, and to something that's beautiful beyond words. I'm connected to you and you, and, and I can experience this sense of transcendence uh, as a sense of, a kind, a kind of sense of wholeness in all of my lack, infinitude, and mortality. I can experience a sense of wholeness in that, in that moment, in, in moments like this. And for me, that is what it means to experience and know God now. For me, this is me, but I, I'm sharing with you how I got there, okay? But again, I, it was a paradigm shift, we would say, getting away from thinking of God as a being and getting away from thinking of God as all-powerful. And that's how I was able to get beyond this dilemma. How do we reconcile the existence of evil with God? And for me, all, again, and I've preached on this, I don't know how many times, the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross, at the heart of Christianity is this radical idea of a crucified God, a God who not only is incarnated into mortal human flesh, but stands in solidarity and shows preference for the poor and the broken and the outcast and is, was himself a peasant nobody from Nazareth and who suffered. And for me, that reveals that, you know, this, for me, this is what makes Christianity so, this is why I'm a Christian still. I was just ordained. <laughs> Because this message of the crucified God is still, is, is something that's, it has me more than I have it. And this is where I find God now. All right. That's, I just preached a second sermon, I feel like. But anybody want to react or comment? Or Yeah, Jason. Yeah, just echo that. Good and evil are human things. They're not God things. So if you're, you know, on a desert island by yourself, you're not good or evil. You can't be good or evil in the absence of other people. Um, and if you get rid of the idea of God as a person 
as a father, as a being, as a anything, then God can be everything. God is the rapist. God is the kid. God is the molecules. God is the sun. God is all those things that happen are uh, kind of smaller scope, I guess, from one perspective, and they so they're horrible. From a bigger perspective, they're meaningless, and I get. Yeah, more, I don't know what the word is. Satisfaction is the wrong word, but um, I can reconcile it in my head by trying to take the view of the whole and not uh, put God in a into it as a separate piece. Um, and that's really vague and doesn't mean anything, but in my head, that helps answer the question. Stuff's hard. Yeah. Brittany, and thanks for being here today. Welcome back. <laughs> I think I'm not saying that I necessarily like I'm going through my own deconstructive process, but um the question of evil and why it exists in the world, like I mean, I grew up in a pretty fundamental evangelical home, but I think this thought still resonates with me that um like God doesn't want, like God wanted to give us free will to, to choose love and to choose him. And because of free will, there's also a decision to choose evil. Um, and so we'd all be like robots. If like he was all powerful and just controlled everything, there'd be no humanity. There'd be no like intellect and rational rationality. And God is wisdom and love and makes choices and has intellect and like gave us the decision to choose him and to choose those things. And so um, that doesn't explain why evil exists, but I think that's how I've told myself, like, why doesn't he just like take over everything and make it good? Because then there's no decision from us to choose him. There's no decision to, to choose love and to choose good because we're just robots being told what to do and everything's being constructed for us. And I think that's also part of the reason why, like, I don't think everything happens for a reason. Like you and I talk today, I take care of kids with cancer. Parents ask me why this happens. I'm like, I don't know. I don't, I don't have a good answer. And I don't think everything happens for a reason. This is a terrible thing. And we, you know, together need to make something good of it by like getting through this process, you know? So um, I, I think that, not that I think that the Adam and Eve story is like totally real. And then I believe every part of it, but because like, like God can still be good and there's like, there can still be evil spirit. There's could be like, God is, his own being that we can't fully understand. There's also probably an evil side to spirituality that we don't understand. Cause I, I don't know, I, I just, I cannot in my mind, like make myself believe that like God is the evil. Uh, Cause then that just, then that doesn't, that just totally like negates the love part of it. Like, well, why, how does that, those two things can't exist in the same, like, I don't know. I don't want to use the word being, but like in the same reality, I guess, but that there are two universes. There are two realities that exist in opposition of each other. And God has given us free will and every, and a lot of decisions to choose one or the other. And at the end of the day, like we're all part of a redemptive process where like every time we make the decision to love and make the decision to choose good, that's part of his redemptive process that you know, however you think there, if there is some 
whatever, not a second coming or whatever we talk about in revelations, but that those are all part of ways that God is in us and that we're making the decision to move towards like the world being what God is good and love and all of those things. But that we, in the process of that, have to make those decisions like on a daily minute by minute basis. I mean, even like things like, why do I choose to like eat food? I shouldn't or not work out when I should, you know what I mean? Like this minimal, that's not what I'm saying is part of it, but our internal clock is determined to make decisions that are not good for us. And like a lot of times choosing evil or not good is is easier. It feels better. Um, And so I, I don't know, I think there's two universes and we get the decision to choose and when we choose good, that is God. And like, that's part of what we're working towards, like as a humanity. So. Don't get me started on predestiny. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, well, that's certainly been a, a topic of debate within Christian circles for centuries. Yeah, thank you, Brittany. Yeah, you know, I, I, and you hear the language here today, right? And all the wrestling. And, you know, all at the bottom line, as Jason was saying, this is, I think Jason was saying, um, you know, ultimately, these are words. These are words. These are English words, to be more specific, right? That we're trying to reach out and grab a hold of that, which ultimately always eludes us, because that's God. And I, I think it's so important to kind of keep all that in mind. It's we simultaneously need to do it, but we must always do it with a lot of humility and realize that we're ultimately trying to describe something we can't. And that's beautiful. It's like art, you know? Um, I don't know. I, for me, that's a humbling thing and a beautiful thing and affirming thing. And I wanted to encourage us with that instead of feeling lost in a, you know, all of these things. But all right. Well, it's after 1130. And so we need to conclude. But I want to thank you for being like Jacob today, wrestling with God by side, beside the river. Um, let us uh, conclude with our corporate benediction, as we always do. Let's say this together now. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Thanks for being here, friends. Go in peace.